podcasting from Alexandria, Virginia, just a few miles from Washington, D.C., where we all hope doing what is right the first time is everyone's top priority. This is Software Quality Today, presented by Procellarex, a podcast about the trends and challenges of software quality testing and computerized system validation, and the people who are leading the way. Hear interviews with special guests and news from customers and vendors. I'm your host, Dory Gonzalez Acevedo, and welcome to today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Software Quality Today. I'm your host, Dory Gonzalez Acevedo. Today I'll be bringing you a lively conversation that I had with Bob McDowell. Bob is an analytical chemist with over 50 years experience in pharmaceuticals as well as consulting. He's been involved with the validation of computerized systems for over 35 of those years. He is the author of book on validation of chromatography data systems published in 2017 and a book entitled Data Integrity and Data Governance Practical Implementation for Regulated Laboratories published in 2019. Bob is the writer and editor of Questions of Quality in LCGC Europe and Focus on Quality in Spectroscopy. One of the columns that he recently wrote in September 2021 was entitled Does CSA mean complete stupidity assured? Um, I'll have the link in the show notes available to you. So without further ado, please welcome Bob McDowell. Well, welcome, Bob. It's a pleasure to have you join Software Quality today. I'm really excited to be able to have this chat with you. Well, thanks very much, Dory, for the the invitation. Uh, I've... um, it's a nice uh, opportunity to uh, to have a nice uh, discussion about computer system validation and uh, computer software uh, assurance. Yeah, so I think uh, hopefully our listeners will really um, take to some of the topics we're going to talk today. I, I think uh, you and I both are um, can can heat this up a little bit. Um, before we get too, um, too in, in there, because it's a very, very rich conversation for both of us, I, I'd love for you to take us um, just to give some frame of reference of who you are in, in the industry and how you came to be um, in the place that you are today. Okay. Uh, essentially, I started life as a forensic toxicologist. So I have a, uh, I analyzed dead bodies for a living and I have a PhD in death which makes me the least likely person you want to sit next to over a meal. Um, I then saw the uh, the light and the additional funding available in the pharmaceutical industry where I worked uh, for 15 years, 10 of which at SmithKline when it was French and uh, five years at Wellcome and then uh, for the past 29 years I've been um, uh, a self-employed consultant, but really, I'm a frustrated academic. But academia <laughs> pays peanuts, and um, my wife would prefer some a better standard of living. But why did I come here? Um, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I. If I go back to the 1980s, I went into my boss's office, and he said, oh, "You got a few minutes. You got a bit of spare time." And I made the mistake of saying yes. So I ended up with a laboratory information management system project to run, um, which uh, I enjoyed, uh, and edited the first book on the things uh, 
that we did and more importantly should have done but didn't and uh, I started getting into computer validation when the software services manager came up with a great big grin on his face and says well Bob isn't it nice to know if I screw up your limbs project you go to jail <laughs> and I thought hang on a sec this isn't right and then I found out it was so in October 1986, I attended a uh, training course in uh, Amsterdam for three days on computer validation, and um, I've been uh, involved in computer validation ever since uh, then. Um, it varies from the sublime to the ridiculous, um, taking screenshots of just about everything under the sun uh, to trying to be a lot slicker, uh, learning from your last project and trying to improve that. Um, so there's a, there's a number of things uh, there. Yeah. So um, that's how I'm sitting here today. <laughs> Great. Thanks. It's, um, you know, being in this industry for such a long period of time, right, we've seen a lot of guidances and documents uh, from a variety of agencies. And you, um, like you said, you're a, um, a, a frustrated academic, but you are a prolific author and you write um, and you also yes. are part of ISPE. So can you tell us a little bit about um, all of your involvements over the years? Okay. Well, I've, um, uh, I suppose since I was, I've been uh, doing my uh, since I did my PhD studies I've been writing uh, articles uh, I was allowed both at SmithKline and at Wellcome to keep publishing uh, and presenting and uh, as well as the limbs book I've written to uh, I've written two books on validation of chromatography data systems and also another one on um, uh, data integrity and data governance for the regulated lab but with ISPE, I guess I've been, uh, I joined um, probably in the late uh, middle 1990s, uh, if only to save uh, money on buying the publications. Uh, but then I've been involved with uh, a good practice guide for IT infrastructure, lab, uh, second edition of the lab guide, and then over the past uh, few years, uh, input and review into um, the records and data integrity guidance, plus also uh, data integrity by design and data integrity key concepts. So that's my uh, input from there. Yeah, and so, you know, ISPE for me is always a go-to, and um, one of the things that has been so helpful over the years is to be able to go back to a standard um, and uh, industry colleagues that are kind of dissecting and putting out in, in a layman's terms some things of that can mm -hmm. be done in practice, and so I appreciate you and, and others that have done that for everybody. I think I think I'd rather correct you on that, if sure. I may. It's a, it's 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 a guide. It's not a standard. Um, as Sean Wynn, the uh, editor of the GAMP guide, says, you can inter. It's it's subject to further interpretation, and on occasions I will do that. Um, for example, I modify a GAMP category four life cycle in the uh, GAMP 5 uh, guidance and 
I condense it down for some of the laboratory systems that I work with uh, in terms of validation because you can streamline things uh, a little bit more. So it's it's a guidance rather than a standard. That's a great nuance. Having said that, having yeah. said that, there's a lot of people involved and they're all volunteers and they also get involved with um, uh, with regulators as well. Right. Yeah, so I, I think, um, thanks for clarifying that point. And it really is um, one of the hearts of, um, I think, the, the nuanced conversation between CSA and CSV, which we'll talk about, right, is this, mm-hmm. this it, they're all guidances, even the FDA puts out guidances, right? And, and it's how we interpret them and what we do with them as an industry that really matter, right? I think the, uh, of course, the one thing that is interesting is you compare the regulations on one hand and the guidances on the other, and both contain the word should. Mm-hmm. However, in the more recent FDA guidances, it defines should as something that is recommended. You can deviate, but you need a good justification. And of course, on every single page, it states contains non-binding regulations or recommendations so it's one of those uh, things yeah great so i want to talk today about the article that you published i guess in late 2021 um yes september's is it september 2021 yeah so the title is, um, which I loved and I thought was um, uh, very provocative um, and needed to be talked about, was does CSA mean complete stupidity assurance? So tell us a little bit about how you came up with that title and, and what was your genesis I think of it? If the genesis was, if you, if you go back in time uh, to the, um, uh, the FDA's case, case for quality they've been talking about csv being a bottleneck now again i will most of my experience is in um, pharmaceuticals and a little in uh, medical devices so i have been involved in 21 cfr 820 and iso 13485 and also iec's 62304 work in the past but it is not the main part so I would preface my comments. So the work that was coming out of that seemed to suggest we use critical thinking, we use trusted suppliers and everything else. And if you look in the publications from the FDA in terms of what guidances they're going to be issuing, it's come up, I guess, over the last three or four years that there's going to be a guidance on software quality assurance, which is touted to be a complete replacement for computerized system validation, which, okay, it, we move on and uh, things evolve, and I don't have a problem with that. But then you start seeing a lot of publications from people, presentations, and for a regulated industry, it says essentially, don't wait for the uh, guidance from the FDA, just do it. And that concerns me a lot. We are a regulated industry, heavily regulated. And 
because of that, it is really a situation that we want the FDA, even if it's a draft guidance, and of course the, some of the draft guidances are updated probably a little slower than Glacier's receipt. <laughs> um, having said that, they, do, they can get their act together. Uh, I mean, the Part 11 scope and application guidance was draft and final within a year, actually less than that, probably uh, uh, eight months. But for the most part, where's the guidance? Because that is the definitive uh, issue. That's the definitive baseline from which we work. And you get people talking about this, publishing it, which is fair enough. But where they say ignore things, ignore the guidance, don't wait for it, just do it, I have a major concern because it's being filtered by those people. You cannot see the definitive guidance from which you can draw your own conclusions. So it comes FDA, a person, through either presentation or publication and filtered down to you. Now, I'm not saying that the people are malicious or, or anything like that or have ulterior motives, but I want to see, based on my experience, I want to read that guidance and I want to interpret it myself. So I became increasingly concerned that because the FDA, in my view, have been have actually abrogated their responsibility of actually getting the guidance out, um, I wanted to write about this because from where I'm coming from, actually, I don't think you need CSA. And I have been writing two columns, uh, one both for analytical magazines. One is uh, questions of quality column, which I've been writing for 29 years now in LCGC uh, Europe. And my focus on quality column in Spectroscopy magazine, uh, which has been going now for 22 years. And the, I, because they tend, I tend to want to write to get people to think. Whether you agree with me or not, I'm not worried. I don't want you sitting on the fence saying, well, possibly you're either going to agree with me or mm -hmm. totally disagree. Right. And so it's written in that sort of provocative style. It's also written, I would hope, in a fairly um, blunt well, it's very factual. Sarcastic? It's very yes. extremely uh, factual. Like the details of which you lay out the timeline of guidances that have been previously written, what they state, all of those things. Um, what I was very impressed with with the article in general was how factual it was and how um, balanced yeah. it was on both sides of, of the argument to then one to, you know, argue. Yeah, I, I think because we are a regulated industry and let's let me let me be totally honest here uh, having having written books and edu and educate people on data integrity i've got to be uh, very honest here for 15 years and i worked in the industry from 1978 to 1918 uh, 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 sorry 1993 i've had worked under glp under gmp and 
I never once read a single regulation. It was always interpreted for me. But being a consultant, you suddenly realise, hang on a sec, I've worked in two companies where there were two totally different interpretations Mm -hmm. of the same regulation. Therefore, I have to go back to basics. And what we find even now is people do not read the regulation. And therefore, if I write something based on my opinion, you've got to be able to derive that opinion from the regulation or the guidance and then say, this is my opinion. You can't just come out and say, this is my opinion. And that's where I think I'm I'm concerned where there's no... Um, guidance from the FDA on CSA. Mm-hmm. Now, to come back to your original um, question about how did I get the title, um, well, let's, let's, let's go back to the 17th century where the father of chemistry, Sir Robert Boyle, uh, talked about the, the sceptical chemist. Well, I'm probably the 21st century, <laughs> the, ske- the cynical chemist. So, I wanted something that would attract people's um, attention Mm -hmm. and get people's to say, hang on, what's this idiot talking about? Mm -hmm. And to go down into more detail. Um, I gather it's, um, it's, it's, it's created some interesting uh, feedback. Uh, most of it that I've received, uh, directly has been very, um, uh, has been very positive. I'm fairly certain there are a few images of me floating around, uh, various organizations, uh, with large needles in them. Well, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but I do, you know, being a consultant. I've got a fairly good impression there, that's true. <laughs> being a consultant for as long as I have as well, right, um, every single cus- client that I deal with has a, a very different view or lens in which oh. they interpret, right? So, so uh, to your point earlier is, is now you see as a consultant, rather than being in a company, right? And of course, there's those that, that jump from company to company and they take their philosophies and ways of being with them. But for the most mm. part, consultants get to see a very, very wide um, spectrum of how to interpret and what companies think about <laughs> the regulations, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'm often asked for is, given that I see all of that, what do I know that works better or not, right? How does one apply these principles in a way that makes most cost effective, most, you know, balanced risk approach, all of these sorts of things. And to get to some of the heart of the things that you talked about, like least burdensome approach, like that has been a thing forever. And now all yeah. of a sudden it's like popped up on on the CSA kind of radar, but that has always been the intent of the regulation yeah. from day one. So why why differentiate? If you go back to 820, it's in 820 mm-hmm. and in the preamble to 820, right. as well as in the general principles of software validation, which is 20 years old. Yeah. And I think the the there's an, an and I guess where I'm coming from, as I say, you and and the article was trying to put in fairly um, what I was hoping clear terms is why we don't need it 
because we already have, have the regulations and the guidance already there. And that's the important thing. Mm-hmm. If you've got it, and and this is, I think, part of the problem, that as we come through the... Uh, if we go back to... 1993 when I first started um, consulting I went to a company that shall remain nameless to protect the guilty but I was presented with two filing cabinets that were six foot high two meters high two meters wide and there's two of them full of screenshots now I'm thinking why because there's some uh, requirement for witnessing and everything else. This is the, if we go back into the 80s, this is what was started. Mm-hmm. Yet, if you look in the regulations, the only requirement in GMP is for copying the master batch record on the basis that you don't want to make five tons of drain cleaner. You want a fine pharmaceutical product. So it's risk management where it's needed. And I think there's also a reluctance to take risk, Mm -hmm. especially with um, QA Mm -hmm. and also with some management. Now, let me give you an example where I was working in um, under 820 and ISO 13485. We were implementing a learning management system that was going to be uh, ultimately having uh, a quarter of a million uh, users on it. And I went through the regulations and I said, here's the rationale. You don't need to sign electronic or electronically sign your training records. Mm -hmm. You just need attribution of action. Right. So we do the nine week validation and we come up to the last week and on Monday of the last week the guy I'm working with gets an email from the vice president what's this you're not putting in electronic signatures we sign our records our training records now we're going to do it in the new system now this is stupidity on stilts management not understanding the regulations and being stuck in what I would technically call the Middle Ages. And so what happens here is that we now have four days or three and a half days to understand how electronic electronic signatures work, write the test script to demonstrate that it works, update the URS, the traceability matrix, the risk assessments, all the other things, implement it and write, test it and write the validation plan. Mm-hmm. We just about made it. Yeah. Um, I, I see this still today. So by the way, so yeah. I still see this activity happening today. I also see auditors insisting that software vendors have training systems, quote unquote, validated and part 11 and records. It's, it's, uh, utterly no, absurd um, exactly yeah. to your point and so but how do we how do we have how do we change this if that's if that's what's out there and that's been for decades now right I think yeah. part of the CSA movement was a hope to 
to spark some sort of conversation I, to stop yeah. this practice, right? I think, uh, actually, I think this is uh, where ISPE and the GAMP Forum come in because they have uh, published um, a document uh, of guidance on um, enabling uh, innovation. innovation. And the one section in there was agile development. And they go to town in that section to say, look, you don't need electronic signatures. You need attribution of action, all this stuff. And if you've got development using um, Jira or DevOps or an equivalent sort of uh, Mm -hmm. application, you have all the – it's so easy to audit and it's a doddle. Yep. And if you put the gates in right. where you can't um, you can't test until you've done a peer review and mopped up all the comments. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I laugh. So I drive a Tesla, right? And I get software updates <laughs> um, <will> you- <laughs> over, over right. the Wi-Fi, right? Um, I, I'm fairly certain they don't use Part 11 signatures in my software <laughs> development, and yet I entrust my Tesla to drive me and my children, you know, to and fro of where they need to be. So I feel like this risk conversation also comes circle back around as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's like not being willing to have a nuanced, hard conversation about risks, associated risks within certain systems. Certain mm-hmm. systems are extremely risky, right? There are the ones that yeah. are absolutely directly impacting to product quality, safety, patient safety. Yeah. But then there's others that are not at all. Yes, I can't agree. Yeah. Um, but even those that impact directly product quality because of the nature of the software, you can take a simpler view. Yeah. And this was something where uh, we developed uh, an, uh, an approach going back um, 13, 14 years now, where we condensed the whole of the validation down into a single document. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've done so, the same thing too with my customers yeah, that, yeah. that allow me to, because it makes sense, right? Why yes. have all these five, six, seven different documents when you can just summarize in one little short thing? Yeah. And so what you have, and if you go back and look at the regulation, it says intended use. So you take from 211.63 intended use and you define just intended use requirements. I think folks okay. struggle with that though, right? I think that the understanding what intended use is and what that means in terms of a predicate rule um, mm. is still very, very hard to define for some organizations. The easiest way to get around that is to actually draw the process out. Mm, a process map. And hmm, what a novel yeah. idea. <laughs> well, actually, the best piece of consulting I did, I, I met the, the guy uh, in April uh, that I work with at uh, a company, and um, the we did a two-day process mapping, mm-hmm. and then a month later, another two-day redesign. Mm-hmm. And the redesigned process to use electronic signatures has been running now for 18 years unchanged. It has gone through several upgrades Mm -hmm. in the software, uh, but uh, it was just for one site, 
it is now six business units globally. The same process. And I'm thinking, wow, best piece of work I've done. <laughs> and we published it. We published it in 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't, I would, if we did it again, the mapping would still be the same, but the uh, level of testing would be a lot more reduced now. Mm-hmm because we'd be leveraging from a trusted software supplier. Right. Because a key word in done. there, right, so so I want to hone on that trust, because you, you, you raised it a couple of times in your article, right? Um, there's a yep. level of trust. There needs to be, right? There needs to be a level of trust with your software vendors. There needs to be a level of trust with your testers. Um, you, hmm. you highlight um, as well, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that because I wonder if that's part of the QA um, uh, conundrum of, of terms of when when to release some of their angst is is around this trust issue okay well let's let's look at it from um, the your you're buying a system and You've got to you've got to assess the supplier. So, what do people normally do? They will send out a supplier questionnaire, and the supplier will fill it out. You could file it. Um, I would always verify one or two key elements there, especially if it was a GAMP Category Three software, but. That assessment is only part of the job, in my view. As you get into a Category 4 system, I would do a one-day assessment of software development. And you can do this remotely, or you can do it face-to-face. If anyone who's listening has a... um, as a software supplier in Hawaii, I can do a very good deal for you. Okay. I suspect Dory living a bit closer will do an even better deal, but that's beside the point. Um, but the point, the, 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 the issue is, how do they develop software? Do they use a waterfall model? Do they use requirement specs? All this sort of thing. And what you find with some companies, and, and when I I'm also a trained auditor, and I spend my life when I'm looking at software development trying to tell people to do less than do more. Because what you find is that they have a software development based on a Jira or DevOps or an equivalent piece of software, and then you get the pharmaceutical auditor in. Where's my requirement spec? Where's this? Where's that? And these guys are working around with the engine room that's perfectly adequate. And then they're putting in all these bells and whistles that basically says, we want this, we want that, which are totally unnecessary. And that's where I think auditors actually bring, uh, or some auditors, I should say, because can't we obviously have to exclude us two from that, Um, bring in a degree of separation. You need to be able to separate the people that say, I don't care what you call it, it's do you do it. Mm -hmm. 
And the key thing that an auditor has to ask, whatever they're auditing, is are these guys in control? Do they have, can they demonstrate that they're in control and we have a traceability from where they start, be it a requirement spec, a marketing spec, a user story, an epic, whatever you want to call it, and I can go through the whole of the life cycle and they've done sufficient. If they've done that, and you don't have to take a lot of time, you can do it remotely, you can do it on site, but if you have a report, and this is where you need to start to differentiate what is a you may have a Category 4 application, but many of the functions within that are actually Category 3. You only yeah. parameterize it. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great distinction. I, I, uh, when I was rereading your article um, and how you talk about that is because the majority of tools that are purchased on the market mm. today are made for general consumption. Right? They're yeah. made for a variety, a host of industries across the board. Jira, you've mentioned, you know, all of these things. They're not made for life sciences specifically, right? Like, so let's no. be real. But what they do do well is they're highly configurable. And they're configurable in ways in which a life science company can use them. Mm -hmm. And back to your data mapping sort of conversation process, the, the customer the the company needs to understand what they're going to use that for right yeah. and and then figure out what is important about that it's not on the software vendor to yeah. to say oh well by the way um you guys only want to use this for um gxp systems then this is what you should do or this is what you should do these are multi you know mm. national companies here it's up to the company that what you want to use it for really matters, right? And if you want to yeah. go through this extra due diligence of writing formal URSs and FRSs and all this stuff for, for functions that already exist that have been tested gazillion times by people that know their stuff inside and out. And if you think you mm -hmm. can do better than the people that actually developed and was paid to do that testing, uh, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's kind of but arrogant. We still right? need we still need a user requirement spec or some form of spec at the front end mm -hmm. which defines our intended use. Yeah. Now, in terms of managing risk and intended use, let me go to a lab example of a chromatography data system. You look in the CDS and you have somewhere between 10 and 15 different calibration models you could use. Mm -hmm. Which ones do you actually use? You document those in your um, URS and you also and you then as part of your assumptions, exclusions and limitations, you document I'm not using these and they're excluded from the validation. Right. And I think the I use assumptions, exclusions, limitations a lot because when I first started um, computer validation, there was no GAMP guide. Mm. And the only thing that we 
could find were the Institute of Electronic and Electrical Engineers software engineering standards. Now, if you're building a nuclear power plant or you're you're putting in a uh, you know mm-hmm. a microprocessor chip factory, you're going to be up the top end of. But we want something that is um, fit for purpose. So you take these standards and documentation, and you adapt them for what you want. Uh, but in the the standard 829, which is software test documentation, there's a test plan. And I still use that to this day. And in the section 6.3 of that test plan is a section called assumptions, exclusions, limitations, or better known in the trade as alibis, excuses and lies. But I won't say that publicly. Now, what you're able to do with the these assumptions, exclusions and limitations, you cannot test everything and you're sitting your approach on top of what the supplier's done. So if you've done your um, assessments of the software development process, all the functions that are essentially GAMP Category 3, you're not going to test. You may have to use them indirectly to get, when you validate your workflow, mm-hmm. but that's the way you're going to be um, uh, you're going to be trying to construct things. So it's a matter of what have the supplier test. You won't be able to do everything because you've only got a day. Yep. And it's an audit, but you have those functions, and you also have your assumptions, exclusions, limitations. Do you test all the different combinations of say? user role and the access privileges because that will keep you tied up for um, a few uh, a few weeks um, these are the sort of things you you can try and reduce and it's trying to keep both a level head of trying to see what you can do and the other thing and I've I've been um, I've been caught up in this is don't customize change the process to map the system rather than change the system to match your crappy process say a little bit more about that because that's one thing that over the last several years i've tried very hard to um you know persuade not to have happen but there's always those stragglers that say oh but we have to have it our way right oh right um there's a Scottish comedian called Billy Connolly. Oh, I know Billy, yeah. Yes. And he has a class of people called Stupid But Savable. Okay. So, you have to persuade those people to not do um, custom software development because I've done it and I know what the pain is. Okay, and once you do it, and if once you, if you do it once, you don't do it again. So let me go back to last century when I had what my wife would call a proper job, and we were implementing the first limbs I was involved with at Smith Klein. We had to take what essentially was a sample-driven limbs and take it into a pro- make it into a protocol-driven limbs, and we were quoted fourteen weeks of custom software. It took 151 weeks. We then had to validate it. 
And then, of course, you find the problem. I know what it says in the specification, but what we really want is this. And, of course, because it was a fixed-price contract and the supplier has lost a lot of money, you're going to pay for this through your nose. And it's not just going to be peanuts. It's going to be every single time you want to update the system because it's mostly hard-coded. So my second system was, yes, we'll have a protocol driver. It will be part of the standard system. I will not accept custom code. Mm -hmm. So that's it. So my view is always look at your process and where at all possible, change the process to match the standard system because you'll be a lot easier. You won't have custom code to upgrade and link with any changes mm -hmm. and you can upgrade a lot quicker and a lot easier rather than leaving it to when you get the dear esteemed customer letter that says you've got nine months left before your system's dead. Right. And that's that's really the way I would I would like to uh, go. It's change the pr change the way that you work and I've got examples where you look at a process and you've got two or three ways to run through and that's not counting the undocumented processes that people sneak out in confidence when you're doing the mapping. Mm -hmm. And then of course if you automate that it's going to take a lot of time to automate mm -hmm. and it's going to take even more time to validate yeah. and that's the big problem. Yeah, I mean, trying to have a company now again, this is excluding the companies that are software as a medical device or folks that are actually making yes. software product for life sciences, which is a whole different category. Right? Yes. But we're talking about for those applications that are readily available off the shelf, you know, most all these configurable, companies, all or configurable, whatever. everyone that, that most companies already have, right? If we look at the life science industry, a lot of the companies, I would say, I would argue have 50, 60% overlap of all the applications that they already purchase, right? So hmm. this, this one has the same as this one has the same as this one has the same, right? There might be a couple different flavors in there, but for what we're talking about, it's usually pretty much the standard same. Um, so no customization is, is really truly required in order to get your work done. Yeah. We also see, I see that a lot in, in SAP world, right? Where Yeah, well, I'll leave you to do suffering and pain. I'll, I'll keep out of that. But the, the one thing, if I can come back briefly to configuration versus customization, you have to be very, very careful because... Um, Marketing organization or marketing departments of certain organizations have discovered we can't call it customization. Mm -hmm. Even if they give you a language, uh -huh. it is always configuration. So if you go to the GAMP guide and look in Appendix M4, it says if you've got a vendor-supplied language, treat it as Category 5. So some mm -hmm. limbs are going to be in that, that sort of situation. Mm -hmm. As long as you control it, it's right. fine. And test okay. it, right? Because you're going to still oh, test that configuration. Specify, for, test it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, great points. Um, and with that, though, also implies a very natural critical thinking skill set that goes along 
this whole entire thing that we're talking about, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I talking about critical thinking, I mean, I make the point in the, in the article, uh, I was auditing a clinical system a few years back, and I was looking at the test script, and it started in November, and it finished in February. And I'm, why has it taken so long? Ah, oh, we were waiting for the password to expire. Yeah. <laughs> now, the normal way of getting around that is that you would normally set, you've got, a, say, a 90-day standard password, which it tends to be industry standard these days, uh, unless you've got a few people that want to um, uh, be a little more lazy and push it up to 120 or even 180. But say 90 days. You would normally, in the test script, you would go in, change the configuration to one day, wait for it to expire. But these days, that's not seen as a good idea because you are now messing around with the configuration. And in today's uh, data integrity environment, that's a total no-no. But look and see how, how does a computer actually determine time. You have a trusted time source that sets the time of the clock. And how does the computer work? Well, it's got a little piezoelectric crystal that vibrates around and the computer counts it, converts the number of vibrations into time. And guess what? It's on every single computer. So if you want to wait 90 days to test the expiry of the uh, password, that's great. On the other hand, if we come back to the assumptions, exclusions, limitations, why are you testing it? If you've got a trusted time source and you've got a piezoelectric cell on every, every single system, what's the point? So it is easier to exclude. But document it. That's the important thing. Because all of this is important to put down to say we're not doing certain things or we are doing certain things but there are limitations and it's that thought process that is really critical and this is where i think the these assumptions exclusions limitations come in because if you go back to 1970 where the US military were asking Barry Bohm to predict what software was going to be like in 1980. And he says, I got some good news and some bad news. So they said to him, what's the good news? There is none, he said. The bad news is the software situation is going to get a lot worse. And he actually gave in this um, report a, um, here's a diagram, simple diagram of some software and if you could test one way through this pathway per nanosecond and you started when Jesus was born by the time this report was published you might be halfway through testing it. Now management's rather unwilling to allow that amount of time to test software. Mm -hmm. Oh and by the way he said this is a simple program flow segment. There's something like 10 to the 21 different pathways through it, you can't test it. So right. what are you going to do? Focus yeah. on what is your intended use. Yeah. And so, and, but 
to your point, so this this kind of critical thinking about looking at each system, doing that analysis, writing up your exclusions, writing up your limitations, all of those things, one, take time, take, um, you know, per- perhaps different perspectives in order to get all that documented, where in your article, and I also have seen this over the years, right, this kind of bucketizing approach where we want to have this tailored checklist and do it the same way every time oh. sort of mentality rather than having the conversation. It's almost as if that that it's a it's a people don't know how to have that conversation. I don't know, maybe not have, yeah. know how to facilitate that conversation. What are your thoughts? I was at the first face to face meeting uh, I've been to in two years in uh, Italy uh, at the end of April. And someone in the audience said, "We are um, we're we're implementing some automated training records, and the QA department want to have everything signed electronically." And I said, "You want to fire the QA department because they don't understand." the regulations tell them to go and read the regs so the first thing read the regs read the guidance understand it and then you start to work out from there what you really need to do that makes it so much easier mm-hmm. and so much effective the the time what I what I would say is documenting these assumptions, exclusions, limitations are actually relatively straightforward because as you start to design, some things are going to be fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. You're going to exclude pulling the plug out of the back of the computer. Right, right. <laughs> unless you're test unless you're testing a UPS. Yes, agreed. Mm-hmm. But. There are other things that as you go down and you start to write and say, well, actually, I could do two or three things here, but what really is my intended use? Mm -hmm. And you document it at the time you write your test script. And that's where I think it is very important um, that you, you keep aware of what you're trying to do and keep in mind the regu- the re- the the requirements that you've written. Mm-hmm. I think you're slipping out of the window there, Dora. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Am I putting you to sleep? No, it's just my I, I'm, I'm half sitting, half standing at my desk. Um, I try oh, to mix right. it up sorry. throughout the day. Yeah, I think it's um, you know, having clear requirements is also an art form. Right. Yes. Um, writing, yes. writing good requirements, writing testable requirements, writing requirements that are um, technically understood in a way that, um, again, if we're looking at general software, um, you know, some of those requirements are um, technically uh, easy to do from a, from a software vendor perspective, not really understood from a from a uh, end user perspective, right? And really differentiating the two um, clearly. Um, the other part of that, though, I also, um, when I was reading through your article around, I still see folks wanting to do the, the full FMEA um, sort of, um, you know, assessment on, on standard software and, and that kind of um, worries Don't me. Bother. 
Don't uh, bother. Because it's, it just doesn't make any sense. And um, but rather really taking a critical look at their user requirements from a, from a mm. risk perspective and, and really understanding why, why did and they the even process. write this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, and I, I don't wish to criticize the, uh, the Gantt Forum, but uh, I will make the comment that um, they've even put FMEA into the certainly into the first edition of the uh, Good Practice Guide for Infrastructure Compliant Control and Compliance. Mm-hmm. Now, I never use that because doing failure mode effect analysis in an IT environment when you've got a lot of standard stuff. On the other hand, there are two very good uh, IT-based risk assessments. The first being an old British standard 7799 part 3. Now, the first two parts have migrated into um, ISO 17799 and then into 27001 and 27002. But the 7799 part 3 is has got a risk assessment in it. There's also a NIST special publication mm-hmm. 800 either 31 or 41 mm-hmm. that has IT related and they focus on uh, what's the value of the asset that you are managing. Mm-hmm. So if you have to have a batch of product where it's $5 million per batch, you want to make certain that your cybersecurity and all the other stuff right, and the right, backup right. is That's right. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. And you've only got, and that's only one batch. And how many batches? How many right. batches of data? Yeah. Or you're keeping your data for registration, and you've got a billion dollar a year product. Mm-hmm. So these are the sort of things. So it defines the assets, and then it starts to look at the vulnerabilities. What have you got in place? Mm-hmm. Or what have you got in place? What are the vulnerabilities? What do you need to do? And you can conduct one of those risk assessments in half a day with a small team of people and you don't have to worry about an FMEA where the Martians are landing uh, next week. Mm-hmm. And this makes a great point because um, one of the things that I try to help my clients with is really, you know, getting to the data itself, right? And I mm. think it's something around when you talk about and you lead your workshops on data integrity, right? I mean, what we're what we're reviewing and approving matter, right? Like, and it's not just necessarily oh, yeah. the process that we go through, but what what is it, right? So while a learning management system need not be quote unquote, fully validated in this very old school traditional way. But what's probably in some ways more important is the content of the training that is being done and delivered, right? And who is reviewing and approving the training itself, right? Rather than just posting trainings and all this sort of thing. And so getting back to the focus of the actual data, right, is really where the heart of the whole conversation, I think, needs to go. I think I think that's a a good point because if you look at the way that computer validation started it's top down. I think I always take the view that there's no point in buying a computer system and implementing it unless you get significant business benefit out of it. Right. Otherwise give the money to my daughters and my grandson and they'll waste it far more effectively than you ever will. Right. But the point is, so you get business benefit, 
and you think about compliance coming along as a secondary objective. So look at the business benefit, look at the process, the business benefits from that, and then you start to identify the data and how you manage it. What the Gamp Forum did with a now out of date good practice guide is that they had in 2005 a part 11 um, I think it was part 11 uh, uh, compliant part 11 records and signatures mm -hmm. and what they tried to do was they identified the records and then they did a bottom up approach but the problem with the bottom up approach is you never get a look at the process and the process efficiencies. So it never really took off. What I would advocate is really both a top-down and a bottom-up approach. Top-down from the process, look at configuring the software, and then look at the, the data and look and see what the vulnerabilities are, control those, and then that's what you end up validating. And you should, and again, the streamlining, the business benefits, because if you spend six months a year, I know companies spend even longer than that validating a system, a system mm -hmm. you, and you don't get an efficient business process, you've wasted all your money. It's a great point. So um, to that point, when we talk about agile project management and agile deployment um, as a methodology, right? Um, one of the things that I've been advocating for a lot now is, you know, this MPV sort of way, right? And that, you know, we can, we can validate and control things along the way. We don't have to wait this six, seven, eight month process that many of these organizations want in order to see the business value of what yes. it is that we're going to want to do, right? Because it may not be, again, you, you can't assess every possible scenario, but what you can assess is some of the best, um, the quick hits or the, the things that will mm. improve your process immediately, right? Yes. Put those quick in place, wins. quick wins, get those in place, put a process together, test those uh, intended use, and then start using the system right away. Rather than having to wait, like some of these approval cycles are two, three weeks long in order to get, you know, a, a requirement spec or, or a summary report approved. And are, is that really adding business value to the critical quality attributes that, that the companies actually want to document and maintain no. and do metrics on? And so I feel no. like it's a counterproductive, in, you know, argument. And how does the business line, the business process owners, right, really justify waiting or letting letting project teams wait and 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 take a waterfall approach I, in that regard? Yeah, I think I think the number of signatures on a document need to be very much curtailed. You need technical author, technical review, uh, technical approval, compliance review and release, maximum of four. And in fact, when I get down to, um, come down to test scripts, mm -hmm. um, I try and negotiate upfront with QA to have just two signatures on the technical review, mm -hmm. uh, technical content, technical review and release. Mm -hmm. uh, the end, the review at the post-execution 
includes a QA review. But different to many people, I have an overarching test plan, which is approved by QA before it goes. So QA have a good oversight, but there's not a lot of value that a QA signature has on a test script. Agreed. When you want to move quickly, and if I come back to the issue I had with my learning management system a few years ago, where we had to implement things very, very quickly, uh, having just two signatures enabled us to write the test script execute it and then have it reviewed quickly right within that short period of time do you think it's a fear of failure that that holds our industry back no i think it's a fear of it's it's basically it's a cya and um if it was okay last inspection it's okay this one Mm -hmm. and they don't think about the c in cgmp that's the biggest problem. And if you, changing the tax slightly, if you look off the uh, CSA, artic- uh, CSA side and look at some of the warning letters that are coming through, FDA are getting really cheesed off with industry. You look at the Stason and Tender warning letters from July 2020. You look at the BBC warning letter from August of last year. Here you've got... Uh, with BBC, you've got instruments where they have the ability to store electronic records, but the company didn't use it. They just printed out and they were cited for that, both in raw, um, uh, raw materials input and in finished product testing. Stason and Tender were absolutely screwed to the back wall by the FDA with two different parts of the CFR cited and identical word-for-word remediation, Mm -hmm. and it's pages of it. Yeah, I find that very um, disheartening when I hear any um, client wanting to take a PDF of an electronic record and (laughs) slap it into another system. I mean, the, the, the amount of more non-compliance areas that they make by not using the systems as they are designed to be um, makes them more risk for compliance yeah. risks yeah. At, in general, right? Yeah. So what do we do from here, Bob? Like how do, how do, we, how do we continue to help an industry that, that, that clearly I think wants some help because I think the part of the CSA movement in general, people want something, right? They want yes. to be told something. They want very, it's like a prescription, right? And Procellarex, <laughs> my company is prescription for software quality because I feel like that that's what they really want. They want a very clear roadmap of what they should do. But at the same time, that's not what the, the regulatory bodies want at all, right? I think the the key thing here is you need to have a flexible approach to computer validation you cannot have a one size fits all you've got to be able to say okay if i've got a if you look at the 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 uh, life cycle models in gamp 5 soon to be gamp second 5 second edition um 
if you look at those models, the category three is basically specify, build, test. And therefore, that's where you can condense virtually all of that into a single document with traceability, with assumptions, exclusions, limitations, and a pro forma report, etc. If you, and that's where I think um, you need to be able to have that. I think people should use prototyping a lot more uh, because this says, I've got an idea, I've got a generic spec to select this system, but that's generic and this is System X version Y. I've got to be able to understand how it works. So I need training. I need management to say, okay, you're going to get training and you now need to play with the system. And in my view, for a large system, you really can't do it part time. No, you can't. That's right. And and if you don't, it takes a long time to really understand yeah. that system in its entirety to then get the en- enablement and adoption across an org- large organizations that we're talking about, right? Um, we're talking about very, very large organizations. <laughs> so you need that time to play without the constraints of all of the, the heavy uh, heaviness of the validation mm. um, that's under test. And that's where I would see, if we come back to CSA, that's where I would see undocumented. You, you play around with the system. You, you look at it. You see what it's like. And from there, you write your second version of your URS that reflects what the system is and how you're going to use it. And you play around with the configuration settings so that you can uh, really get a far better understanding of how things work. Once you've got that, then you can try and reduce the amount of testing by assessing the supplier. And of course, this is a two-edged sword. If you find that they're working on uh, sealing wax and shoestring, you got a problem. Mm-hmm. Or I should say, uh, backs of envelopes and uh, undocumented testing then you've got a major problem. But most companies don't do that. So even if you don't have a formally uh, assessed or certified QMS, if there is a QMS, then I will be quite happy providing it meets certain requirements. Then you can start to reduce the amount of testing by saying, okay, if it's a Category 4 system, how many of my requirements are actually Category 3 functions? And then from there, focus it on what is configured. And don't forget, in 2.11.63, it talks about adequate size. Mm. And what have you got to do? If you look at a GLP, it's even better, because 58.61 talks about adequate capacity. So where are your pinch points? Mm -hmm. Because you need to make certain you've got enough capacity or size to handle those pinch points. Yeah, that's actually a great point because um, in software quality testing, performance testing is actually really super important um, and often not thought about when we talk about CSV in general because 
It's mm. not one of those things that you check off uh, on the box from a traditional CSV model perspective. But when we're talking about software in general, performance, availability, these sorts of things, especially as we shift towards a SaaS model, oh. lots of these, these, these systems that we're talking about, right? So where and security right security and 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 performance for SaaS is much much more important than whether or not yes. you know the particular feature is in its full function you know it, you might be beta for a feature perspective but if their security and their performance is not up there for the size and volume of what you're going to do it doesn't matter right mm-hmm. so that's yeah. good yeah all right so bob last words <sighs> last thoughts um I think I think the one thing is the last the last thought would be I would encourage people to go or companies to go back to basics. Look at the regs and if you look between the lines of the part 11 scope and application guidance from 2003 one of the things that it did say was look at the regs. Not in so many words, but it says where the predicate rule says, and that says, go back and read. So back to basics, look and see what it says. Look at some of the guidance documents, and I would advocate in the absence, uh, the general principles of software validation, front ends, some of the development side of things will probably be out of, is 20 years out of date. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is... um, there are um, publications on the use of uh, Agile. I think there's a joint FDA or um, Taylor from uh, Medical Devices was involved in one of these. Um, is it AMMI? Um, yeah, had a, a publication. Yes, uh, TMRI, I think. TMRI or AMRI? I have the link. Yeah. I will add it to the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that would looks at agile in a for a regulated area mm-hmm. or developing software and i think it's really trying to look at what you want out of suppliers and out of systems and part of that would be retrain your auditors because some of the things that they're asking for mm-hmm. and as I work not just for the industry, I also work for software suppliers selling into the industry. Mm-hmm. If an auditor asks for something, just say, okay, I can't understand why you're asking for this. Show me what it says, where it says in the regulation. Is it the auditor's opinion mm-hmm. or is it actually a regulation, a regulatory requirement or it's in a regulatory guidance document. Yeah. Show me. Yeah. And I think the one thing is that we are the the software suppliers are more interested in getting a sale and therefore they start to roll over. I think they need to push back a back. bit more politely, not mm-hmm. aggressively, but to really do things. And in coming back to companies, really assess what you do do you need screenshots for everything no you need you can use the system and the audit trail to self-document and validate the audit trail it makes so much easy sense right yeah keep it simple 
Keep it simple. I love it. Well, Bob, thanks so much for sharing your time and thoughts with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed our conversation. I hope I haven't monopolized it. Not at all. Not at all. I I welcome always um, the the conversation, and I appreciate you taking the time across the pond so it's late at night for you and um, staying up for us. I appreciate that as well. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay. That's good. Thanks for listening to Software Quality today. If you like what you just heard, we hope you pass along our web address, percelorex.co, to your friends and colleagues. And please leave us a positive review on iTunes. Be sure to check out our previous podcasts and check us out on LinkedIn at Percelorex. Join us next time for another edition of Software Quality Today.